0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks
1: for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Um, We come to you after a historic day in American uh, history and politics. Uh, Donald Trump has now been uh, arraigned and uh, made aware formally of the charges against him that played out throughout the day yesterday in uh, Manhattan uh, court. We're going to talk about some of the uh, charges uh, that Trump is facing. But, but I think to a larger extent, we're going to look at this from a political uh, perspective and uh, look at how um, people across the country are responding to what Trump now faces. Um, got a great panel to get us going today, starting with the AJC's Washington reporter, Tia Mitchell. Tia, you were in New York at the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene rally uh, she went up there to lead the Trump allies in a protest over his uh, uh, indictment. And in a couple minutes, we'll ask you to fill us in on what you saw. But in the meantime, thanks so much for being with us after a long day yesterday. Of course. Good morning. Maya King, New York Times uh, political reporter, uh, uh, covered part of that story yesterday, too. Uh, Maya, you shared the byline on the story about Trump's defiant speech last night at Mar-a-Lago. And we're looking forward to hearing your comments about that. And in the meantime, thank you too for being with us today.
2: Absolutely. Always glad to be here.
1: We're By the way, we are so glad to have you back. It's been quite a while. You did You took, um, after the election, you went up to New York to work on uh, the desk up there to report national stories from up there for a while. And we're really glad you're back here in Atlanta and we can have you back on the show. So I just want to say that before uh, moving forward. Thanks for being back with us. Audrey Audrey Haynes, Professor of Political Science and the head of the Applied Politics Program at the University of Georgia, where... She works with students who want to find careers in politics. Audrey, um, can't wait to hear your thoughts about how everything unfolded yesterday. I have some. Yeah, I'll bet you do. <laughs> and I'll bet, I'll, bet, I'll bet Rick Dent, uh, who has been a political operative for much of his career. When I introduce you, Rick, I often mention that over your years in politics, You actually uh, did work with three Southern Democratic governors, including uh, being press secretary for Governor Zell Miller back in the 90s. Um, And Rick, I think our our listeners see you as not only um, really cogent in your observations, but one of the most acerbic uh, people commentators that we have on the show.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. It's, it's good to be here.
1: All right. Let's start, uh, Tia, with uh, uh, the rally itself, because that involves uh, George's own Marjorie Taylor Greene. She went to New York yesterday after her big appearance on 60 Minutes. And if you don't mind, Tia, I'll just read to the listeners the lead to your story. Chaos greeted U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, upon her arrival for a rally she hosted in a small Manhattan park to support former President Donald Trump supporters, critics and the media swarmed her the minute she arrived in the she stood in the shadow of the courthouse uh, where Trump was expected to turn himself in. She attempted to deliver remarks from a small platform by shouting through a bullhorn, but it didn't take long for the critics of Marjorie Taylor Greene to shout her down, right?
4: Right. So it was, I don't even, I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure you guys and the listeners have seen the video, but like there was so much media at the park. I would say media, if you combine the Trump allies, supporters, and the anti-Trump protesters there, if you combine them, They were still outnumbered by the media three to one. And so when Marjorie Taylor Greene arrived, she was just mobbed and circled to the point where I could barely see the top of her head from where I was maybe 25 feet away. Um, But when she tried to start speaking, those anti-Trump protesters, they had drums. Someone had given out whistles. There's a lot of controversy on who actually... Brought the whistles, but I can confirm that the whistles were used to drown Margie Taylor Green out, make sure you could not hear what she said. Um, and so she left pretty quickly. It was less, you know, when we think of rally, we think of um speakers and and time to, you know, react the audience being able to hear the speakers and react to them. That was not what that was. That was pandemonium for 10 minutes, and then it was over.
1: What was her demeanor as she was confronted by all of these critics uh, yelling? The one, one person you uh, quoted uh, yelling, go back to Georgia. Uh, did she Was she defiant? Did she handle it with a certain calmness? How, how did she uh, behave in the midst of all that?
4: So one of the things that Representative Green has gotten really good at, and I think, you know, she's kind of had no choice, is kind of to develop a stiff upper lip in the face of when she is met with critics, you know, when she holds events and protests, um, there usually are opponents who show up and they they yell things to her. Um, they heckle her, whatever you wanna call it. They yell out their disapproval. So I think she's gotten used to it. So she just tried her best to power through. Um, but I think it was clear that the rally didn't go as planned. There were other speakers that never got the platform that were planned. Um, so she had to retreat. Um, but she would never describe it as a retreat. You know, I think for her, she did say it was a safety issue, but she said she was worried about the people in the park, it becoming a safety issue, not her own safety, you know. So publicly at least, she she's very defiant and but also very. She didn't get angry at the people. She didn't yell back. She just tried to power through and kind of have a steely reserve about her.
1: You talked to her uh, briefly after the rally. What did she tell you?
4: Yes. So after the rally, again, because we didn't not only did media not get a chance to ask her questions at the rally as she had planned, but most of us couldn't even hear what she said. Um, so she did grant media interviews to select outlets. And we talked about why she felt it was important to show up for Donald Trump. And, you know, she also flew to Mar-a-Lago last night. But we talked about why she wanted to hold the rally. And of course, she believes that the charges against Trump are basically political persecution. She even, she didn't say this to me, but she told a different outlet, you know, she kind of compared Trump to some religious figures who also had been persecuted. Um, and, but she also said she was disappointed to receive such a negative reception from, uh, the people of New York. She blamed mayor Adams who had called her out by name during a press conference the day before, um, Said that he owed her an apology. I doubt that will happen, um, but but yeah, she she definitely doubled down in her defense of Trump. Um, but I think she she did admit she was disappointed that her rally didn't go as planned.
1: Yeah, she uh, you ever uh, quoted as telling you uh, it's a witch hunt? I don't think any of us want to live in a country where the government can be weaponized against a political. Opponent Audrey Uh, Tia mentions that uh, in some of her remarks, she compared Trump to some pretty remarkable figures. Um, Nelson Mandela, uh, I think, was one of the people she compared him to. After who was, of course, imprisoned for many years in South Africa. Uh, But then during this Holy Week, uh, she compared him to Jesus Christ.
0: Right. Yeah, there's not much to say about those choices that she's made. I mean, most of us will be sitting there with our jaws dropping down. But, you know, I, I would say it's very interesting to see that Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the only ones of the Republican um Uh, uh, office, elected office holders that showed up in support. Um, From my reading of a lot of the uh, coverage, it seemed like the only other ones that showed up there, I think George Santos walked by to show his support, and then the naked cowboy was there. So, you know, (laughs) that's what Trump is getting. It looks more like a reality TV show than someone actually standing up for him. But one of the things that hasn't been covered very much is that this... um, this protest or support, Mm -hmm. I should say, for um, Trump was also coordinated by the young Republicans of New York. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to read their statement. I just want to read a few of the words that they said um, that they used in support of President Mm -hmm. Trump and the words they used um, for his opposition. They um, referred to tyranny. Uh, of the actions that were taken in New York. The cabal of radical figures, monsters, radical leftists, the elite internationalist uh, cabal, and they also mentioned the solid grasp of the fifth column on his throat. They called Trump their total, he is our total indisputable champion our president and every American owes him thanks. It's just very interesting to see the words that are being used and thrown around quite dangerously, I might ask. But, you know, when she is comparing uh, Trump to, you know, uh, a Christ figure, uh, there are people out there in Maga land who literally see him as that. And a, and a group like the young um, Republicans of New York are utilizing that very same language.
1: Well, we've, we've certainly seen many evangelical, conservative evangelicals, uh, make that same comparison, that uh, Donald Trump is anointed by Jesus, if, if not a Christ-like figure uh, himself. Um, I, we're obviously going to talk about Trump in court and talk um, about the speech last night. But, you know, again, we're a Georgia show, so I'd like to say a little bit more with the panel about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And Rick, one of the things that occurred to me, in watching it yesterday, ever since the sixty minutes interview uh, with Leslie Stahl Sunday night, um, we already knew that Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, in, I think, in a very clever way, formed her alliance with Kevin McCarthy. When the uh, new Congress uh, came in, uh, she uh, was able to uh, make herself one of the leaders of the Republican Party, and and she's playing that hand pretty well right now. Um, but the fact that she was the main supporter of Donald Trump to show up, um, the main elected supporter to show up and want to lead that rally that she then flew down to Mar-a-Lago. What does it say to you about just what kind of powerful figure she's become in the MAGA world and in the U.S. House? You, you know, it. Yeah. In one respect, it's it's kind of scary, uh,
3: but but don't underestimate this woman. Um, she has a lot of political support. She can raise lots of money, and she's one of the few that has actually been able to, as you just said, translate her support for Trump and leverage that into power for herself. Mm-hmm. So she, she certainly had a huge role in determining who the Speaker of the House was. And when you are able to do that, a lot comes with that. So for her to go to New York, I, that was just perfect, perfect politics for her. And and you know, you mentioned the, the 60 minutes and um, the idea that she's developed a thick skin. You know, I was quite taken. I'm, I've worked with a lot of political figures. I've never seen anyone have to sit through an interview where the the reporter said, okay, you've been called an idiot, you've been called a moron, you've been called a racist, and she just didn't even blink. So with all of that, it's scary, it's mind boggling, but she comes from a part of Georgia where she's extremely popular and um, she's not going to go away.
1: My, in a couple of minutes, I'll ask you about Mar-a-Lago, the Mar-a-Lago speech. But in the meantime, here you are uh, based out of Atlanta for The New York Times. So presumably, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be someone who you'll be watching uh, for quite some time to come.
2: Absolutely. And I think what everyone has said is absolutely right. I mean, she certainly has solidified herself, not only as... Um, an avatar for the grassroots, someone who has been a mouthpiece for the base, the Republican, or at least the far right portion of the Republican base, but someone who has aimed to make inroads uh, significantly with establishment Republicans and has been unapologetically uh, vocal about her desire to continue to kind of climb in Washington. Now, what that means, we don't know yet, Um, But for a national audience looking at Georgia, they might see someone like Green and think that she's an outlier, that she's someone who really is all kind of hot air. But I think the closer that I've been to the ground, the more I realize she really does have a following here. And she's going to just continue to use that uh, to leverage the power that she does want in Washington.
1: All right. Um. Uh, we're enough enough about Marjorie Taylor Greene today. You know, tomorrow uh, Kevin Riley, now editor at large at the AJC, will be one of our panelists on the show, and and I'm going to talk to him about this issue of how do you balance between dealing with an extremist like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the kind of outrageous uh, statements she makes um, against the fact that she has become a force probably the most significant Republican in the House right now. How do you balance those off in terms of thinking about how you give her news coverage and legitimize some of her, uh, what she does? But we'll get to that tomorrow. Um, So now, Maya, let's talk about the Mar-a-Lago speech last night. Uh, Trump flew back from New York pretty quickly. Uh, I, I believe he had, what, about 300 people is what the reporting said at Mar-a-Lago to hear his speech. Would you, if you don't mind, set the scene for us and then uh, give us some of your thoughts about the comments that he made.
2: Well, sure. Um, I was working on covering this speech with my colleague, Michael Bender, who was on the ground at Mar-a-Lago. And the way that he described the room was that it was set up in a way to make it look like there were more people there than there actually were. So it was a huge ballroom, the same ballroom where the former president uh, declared his third campaign or candidacy for the White House. And um, it had a huge sort of uh, runway in the middle for the former president and many of uh, the MAGA world celebrities to walk down and for everyone to cheer for them as they did so. But it was so spread out with chairs on both sides, again, to sort of fill the room up and make it look like. Uh, there were more people there than they than might have actually attended. We know that that Trump world is very obsessed with, with crowd numbers and crowd sizes. Um, before he actually spoke, he did not take any questions from reporters while he was in New York, saying that he was going to save that time and actually start to address them, or at least have something bigger um, when he actually gave his speech at Mar-a-Lago. But um, by all accounts, I mean, the speech was rather underwhelming, at least by Trump standards. It was exceptionally short at a little less than 22 minutes long. And instead of the usual um, applause lines and sort of rah-rah rally language that I think a lot of reporters were expecting to hear, the president took um, a really gloomy and kind of combative, pessimistic tone uh, talking not only about the uh, indictment and the arraignment, calling it unfair and, you know, the usual kind of greatest hits now that we've been become accustomed to hearing from him as he talks about this, but also running through um, a laundry list of grievances that he had against other people in other instances. So he talked about the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago in August. He talked about Letitia James, the New York attorney general and her investigation. Uh, into his and his family's business dealings. He talked about Fonnie Willis and called her a racist in reverse Um, and the the Georgia uh, uh, probe that's taking place right now. Um, He really was admonished before the speech, as we know, to sort of um, be mindful of his words and not to say anything that would incite violence um, against the people that he was talking about. But it seems that he kind of ignored that guidance. (laughs) A lot of what we heard was the continued attacks, um, verbal attacks, against not only uh, Willis and James, but Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, and Juan Marchant, who's the judge overseeing the case. So um, not anything remotely unusual from the former president outside of how short the speech was, I would say. But we were expecting uh, sort of a, a defiant And I'm going to beat this former Trump, former President Trump, who could uh, project some kind of confidence to his supporters and get them excited. We really didn't get that last night. It was very it was I won't call it defeatist, but it was obvious that the former president was upset about this. He was angry. Um, And that was really more of what he wanted to convey last night.
1: Yeah, I do think it's important to point out that uh, Judge Mershon yesterday cautioned him said, stop it with the inflammatory rhetoric, with the uh, calls to violence. Uh, we, I'm, I'm asking you to stop that. Um, and, and yet Trump, of course, as you point out, went right at it. He talked about uh, the judge hating him. The judge's wife, I don't know where she comes into play in all this. She hates him. The judge's daughter hates him. Um, Alvin Bragg is a racist. So, I mean, he clearly didn't pay any attention to uh, what the judge cautioned him about, Tia, um, uh, Maya referred to the remarks that he made about Fonnie Willis. Uh, The quote is this. He said, in the wings, they've got a local racist racist Democrat district attorney in Atlanta who's doing everything in her power to indict me over an absolutely perfect phone call. So uh, I guess Brad Raffensperger got a perfect phone call So did Vladimir Zelensky.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's troubling that Trump is using race kind of against these black district attorneys. Um, Neither one of them has made race an issue. It's Trump who's making race an issue because these district attorneys happen to be black and he's using that to try to undermine. And I get it. Of course, no one wants to be investigated. No one wants to be charged. But to me, that's what sticks out the most is that it's Trump who is injecting race to try to diminish the the professionalism of these elected district attorneys and to try to undermine whatever they might ultimately decide. And that's a deliberate choice. And like we said, even after the judge told him, hey, watch what you say, he turned right back around and the first time he got a platform, he was just as as combative as ever. And that probably tell us more to come as things start to heat up. Rick? you
3: You know, from a strategy standpoint, that's exactly, And it may be, and it's repulsive, but it's exactly the kind of argument he needs to be making to his base. For a lot of people, the problem with all of this in terms of prosecutions is where is the Department of Justice? And because the Department of Justice has not done its job, you've had local DAs, they've had to step into that void. And the fact that the two main ones we're talking about are African-American. It's a perfect, an absolute strategic, perfect assault for someone like Donald Trump to make. Because what it implies is this is politically motivated because, and he doesn't have to make the connection because they all get it. They're African-American. That means they're Democrats. And Democrats are coming after me. And if they can come after me, they can come after you. And that's just on its face is his argument. Not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's right. But I do understand it. It works for him and it works for his base.
1: Audrey?
0: You know, I'll I'll jump in there and add and say, you know, if you look at the narrative and sort of the comparison. So, you know, Trump has existed in this world. For decades, and for decades, he's cheated, not paid people, you know, lied, even got to the point where he was, um, you know, admired for some of that. You know, that 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 notion that he can do whatever he wants to, and he's he's said things that suggest, you know, I can shoot somebody, I'm not going to be in trouble. He talks like a mob boss sometimes. He does things, you know, he implies things, and this story is very much like in New York City how every other mob boss has been taken out by financial records. And just for history, I just want to add that if you think about Nixon and Nixon, you know, um, the notion that he resigned, Nixon got into trouble because of things like a cover-up of a burglary, potential fraud with his finances. You know, and and Trump, if you if you were to actually objectively measure everything that he has done, It is a big pile of stuff. And I literally think that he is astonished that after decades of getting away with everything that he does and accumulating so much power and influence and a following that is cult-like, I think part of that gloominess comes from, for the first time ever, he's worried about the consequences of his actions.
1: Um. Thank you for uh, that, all of you. I do have to get to a break, but you know what, uh, Maya, before I do, I want to pick up on something Rick said about the fact that um, up until finally DOJ decided to get animated about investigating Trump, appointing special counsel Jack Smith and everything, um, uh, it it, it was local DAs that had to deal with it. And and one interesting um, moment In Chuck Todd's interview on Meet the Press with Cy Vance on Sunday, um, and of course Cy Vance was uh, Alvin Bragg's predecessor in the DA's office, came um, because many people have used the argument that Alvin Bragg went ahead with the case that Cy Vance said wasn't worthy or they felt he thought wasn't worthy of pursuing. But on Meet the Press, Cy Vance said that wasn't what happened. What happened was DOJ came to me asked me to drop the case because they wanted to take it on. And then he told Todd um, that he was extremely disappointed that DOJ never did uh, move forward, which sort of undermines this notion that Alvin Bragg picked up a case that Cy Vance didn't think was worth pursuing. Um, so uh, Maya Rick's comment about DOJ coming in a little late is, is interesting.
2: It is, and it shows just how complicated all of this is beyond the uh, the ma- narrative that has been coming out of the right, which is that this is politically motivated. And I think the more that we get that we understand, um, especially these 34 uh, felony counts against the former president, the more we'll be able to see, at least the public will be able to see just how deeply this runs. Um, you know, Audrey makes the very good point that the former president has done quite a bit and that there's more to this case than um, there are more cases out there. And so the fact that DOJ was seriously considering this, I think shows just how grave um, some of the former president's actions were, but also um, the fact that, that I think we'll all back up and say that we know that a district attorney's uh, office is a political office, but the work that they do is not necessarily politically motivated. And so it's important to keep that in mind where you see, I think what's what the former president is facing which is some pretty significant counts here. Um, And it underlines the fact that Bragg is not acting in a way that is politically motivated. He's really just following um, what he feels is right in the situation.
1: Okay, got to get to the first break of the show, back with more in just a moment.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: Rick Dent, who, by the way, is vice president of Matrix Communications. I didn't mention that when I introduced you before, Rick. Audrey Haynes, Maya King, Tia Mitchell, join me uh, for the show today. Tia, um, let's talk about how the public is perceiving the politics uh, of this indictment for just a minute. Let me read to you and to the rest of the panel uh, just a couple of lines from uh, two different polls. CNN uh found in their polling two days ago that 76% of their respondents said yes, politics did play a role in this indictment. 52% said it played a major role. Now, given that, it's also interesting that when asked if they approve of the indictment, 60% uh, said uh, yes. So, to at least some people, the fact that politics played a role doesn't mean that it wasn't a worthy uh, indictment, or maybe they like the fact that it's a political indictment. Um, uh, it asked whether what Trump did was illegal. <clears> 37 percent, excuse me, said yes, while 33 percent said, <clears throat> excuse me, it was simply unethical. Um, and one more Uh, Marist for NPR reported that their survey showed 56% said that they thought the indictment was fair. 41% called it a witch hunt. And of course, all of those numbers still are along partisan lines. Republicans completely in the opposite direction from Democrats. Tia.
4: Yes, I think that first point you made is key in that people can believe that there were political motivations, at least somewhat behind the decision, but still believe it was the right decision. And a lot of the polling has showed that even Republicans, not a majority necessarily, but a good chunk of Republicans say, hey, if there's a possibility of a crime, bring it, bring the charges, let the legal system play out. For the most part, Americans tend to want to trust the legal system to play out, you know, still innocent until proven guilty, but let let it let it let the let the courts decide. Um, I do think another um, poll that I saw it was an old it's an Ipsos poll, but it showed how over time, historically, when um, when Bill Clinton was impeached. Through the course of the impeachment trial, all political parties were less skeptical or more supportive of the impeachment as the trial went on. Richard Nixon, same thing. As the the Watergate went on, people who were initially skeptical, the more facts they received got less skeptical. Now, for Trump's impeachment, the line was flat. Democrats, same level, level. Republicans flat line even as his impeachments went on, but for independence for Trump, that was the only line that as his impeachment went on, the polling from independence got more um, supportive of the impeachment. And that to me was something that I think Trump needs to consider the people who support Trump, that as these charges play out, the support may increase among independents that are that key demographic that Republicans know they need if they want to be successful in 2024.
1: Yeah, I think that, thank you. That was really an interesting uh, uh, polling uh, uh, framework to, to bring up. So, Audrey, in terms of all this, what's really interesting to me was when I saw yesterday for the first time the timeline that follows yesterday's arraignment in Manhattan court. We're not going to see Trump, or at least his lawyers, back in court until December. Between now and then, uh, the uh, uh, district attorney's office will uh, have to uh, uh, give to the defense all of the uh, uh, material related to the indictment, there will be a chance for the, they'll have to file it. The DA's office will have to file it. The defense will have a chance to respond. It won't be till December. And, and of course, what's fascinating about that is, Audrey, it means that a trial in Manhattan won't start certainly until early, if not well into the actual year of the presidential election.
0: Yes. And I tell you what, I think it's going to be very dynamic. I mean, this process could take many, many months. I'm married to an attorney who still has cases that are going for as long as five years. They take a long time. Um, you know. And the interesting thing is that Trump can campaign. He can campaign. Now, what would be really interesting is if this opens the floodgates to indictments in the other areas. If they do, then I think he's going to be pretty much overwhelmed by some serious complications to his campaign. And as Tia was saying, one of the things that we know about people is that they learn information. Learning is much slower than people think because of information coming in, but all of those things may have an impact on the campaign. And here's what's really interesting. Asa Hutchinson is in the race. He's declared that he's gonna run, right? You've got Nikki Haley, who's kind of flat, not really picking up any speed with her current strategy. DeSantis is sitting there going, what do I do? I don't know what to say. Do I love, do love Um So what if they decide that this is an opportunity, you know, to go on the attack? You know, if the other things aren't working, I mean, we don't know because this has never happened before. We are again in truly new waters. So I think it's going to be one of the most interesting. I'm going to start working on taking notes for the book because it is going to be a best seller.
3: You know, Bill, the most interesting number in that poll that we started with is 93% of Republicans think it's politically motivated. That's going to have a huge impact on this race strategically, because what it it will do and will continue to do, it's frozen his opponents. And when you are running against somebody, you win with a combination of two things. Number one, promoting yourself, what a great person you are, and attacking the other opponent. They cannot attack him if 93% of Republicans think it's politically motivated. And if you can't attack him, how are you gonna beat him? Now, what Republicans need to do, I'm gonna give them free advice, (laughs) and they understand this. They need a stalking horse candidate with a lot of money to make all the attacks that need to be made to try to take him down so that a DeSantis or Nikki Haley can then do their work promoting themselves. But if you try to touch Trump in that primary, I think it's going to be deadly to your campaign. And that's the problem that his opponents have. And that is why all of his opponents right now are supporting him in this indictment. It's, fa- it's really fascinating.
1: Maya? Oh, Maya?
2: I think, yeah, we've talked a lot about the primary, and I'm thinking also about the general, because one person who yeah. we haven't really heard from on this is President Biden. He and Democrats, well, he, I will say, the White House, I'm not talk about other Democrats, has been very strategically silent about this, and it's kind of hearkening back to his 2020 strategy, where, as you saw, former President Trump Uh, sort of, you know, continuing this kind of chaotic rampage in a year that was already extremely, extremely trying for voters, uh, you had Biden projecting this air of, you know, calm and normalcy and like this steady hand that he can provide. And so here again, you have this former President Trump who is dominating all these headlines And I mean, my understanding, according to what my colleagues are reporting this morning, I mean, the White House is saying, keep going to Republicans, continue the chaos march. We're totally fine with that because here on Pennsylvania Avenue, we're going to be talking about policies. We're going to be talking about Build Back Better. We're going to be continuing to talk about the things that are more directly tangible to voters. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to this battle, uh, which I think it will come down to again in 2024, those beloved independent voters who right now might see Trump as a sympathetic figure, but I think Democrats' calculus is they will grow tired yet again um, of the drama and, and come home to Democrats.
1: So, so all that makes sense to me, uh, and, and certainly Democrats are going to let Republicans hang themselves with this for as long as possible. The other side of that for me, Tia, is wondering, at a certain point, uh, President Biden's going to need some oxygen to be able to get his messages out there in terms of the policies he is pursuing. Um, And right now, uh, he's nowhere near being in any headlines.
4: Yeah, but he doesn't need to get his message out right now if the election is no. in 2024 and he's the right, presumptive right. nominee. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you're, you're right, but it's not time for Democrats to panic about right. that yet. You know, for them, especially now, should something happen and for whatever reason, President Trump decides not to run or is, you know, somewhat sidelined, then that's a different conversation. But if he's the nominee and all, you know, all systems are a go, um, he can lay low until Republicans have a presumptive nominee. And that's something that in the best of scenarios wouldn't happen until, you know, April or May of next year. And so, um, I think, again, I think President Biden and his team believe that for now, what they're doing is quietly building the case community by community. You know, he's going to swing states. He was in Milwaukee. The HUD secretary was in Norcross. They're going and getting that local coverage um, all around the nation over the course of this month. And I think they think that that'll be a good contrast um, when, when, when the time comes.
1: Um, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's no reason for Biden to be out there right now. You know, the question is whether these trials next year, How you know, uh, how much Biden will be able to break through on that, especially if he's being indicted uh, by uh, Fani Willis and going through that legal process at the same uh, time. All right. You know, in the days ahead, there will be more to talk about on this show uh, about what's going on with Donald Trump But um, I want to turn to a couple of other issues. One is the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, which we talked about extensively on the show yesterday. We have a winner today, and it tells us something important about Wisconsin voters and perhaps voters in other states as well. We'll do that and more after we pause for our final break. Okay, Paddle, we have 10 minutes left in the show, Natalie Mendenhall tells me, and I'd like to ask you to address two different issues if you will help me with that. One uh, is Wisconsin. Audrey, for 15 years, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has been dominated by conservatives who have um, uh, approved, said that a 19th century abortion ban in Wisconsin is uh, still legal in the aftermath of Dobbs. They have refused to do anything about uh, radical gerrymandering of the state, which favors uh, Republicans. They um, have uh, approved legislative measures that strip some powers from Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Um, And yesterday, yesterday, uh, Janet uh, Protasiewicz, the liberal pro-choice candidate, won that race against the conservative Daniel Kelly. And for the first time, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is going to have a, le- a liberal uh, uh, leaning. It's important in part because of what it says about voters' desire, apparently, to support choice in Wisconsin.
0: Yes. And, you know, um, Protusawitz, basically, if you think about Wisconsin politics, had somewhat of a blowout. If you win by a few percentage points there, that's a big deal. And, um, you know, this is sort of the Scott Walker legacy that helped, um, you know, bring about what what many people would call is an unrepresentative stranglehold on the legislature because the matchup is somewhat like Georgia. If you look at Georgia and the percentage of people who identify with either party, you know, you would see a much closer um, representation in the state house and in other areas. But, you know, what it does mean now is that um, people who would be considered more progressive judges will have the majority on the state Supreme Court. And when um, dealing with issues like abortion and election laws, we may see some significant changes uh, in terms of how the laws are interpreted. And this is a major, major win for progressives in the state.
1: Rick, Rick, Portasiewicz won this race by 11 points, underlining what uh, uh, Audrey just said. But it also... It also means that Wisconsin joins Vermont, Michigan, um, what is it, I think, uh, uh, Nebraska, states where voters have stepped forward since Dobbs and said, no, we want choice in our states.
3: Well, and and it may be further proof that the abortion issue actually has more legs than many of us thought, especially those of us in Georgia, which saw no legs at all. What what may happen is Wisconsin has the potential now to be to the House of Representatives what Georgia has become for the U.S. Senate, and that is when they start tinkering wow. with those districts. And the House of Representatives is so close, just like the U.S. Senate was for Georgia for the last few elections. They could change those districts in a way that it has a fundamental impact on who leads the House of Representatives. So Wisconsin could be the new Georgia just for a different house.
1: Um, Maya, and of course, Wisconsin in 2024 will once again be an important swing state. You know, 30,000 votes is all that separated uh, Trump and Biden in uh, 2020.
2: And I think that's all the more reason why we have to pay attention to what's happening there and what voters are saying, too. Um, It underlines, you know, as Rick points out, the fact that abortion is still very much a salient issue. And I think also it shows kind of what the will of voters is. If I'm a Democrat at this point, I'm looking at Wisconsin and saying, Not only do I need to hold the gains that might have been made there, but I have to also try to push into them. And there's always been this talk about the Rust Belt and where, you know, that stands with Democrats, whether they've lost it or if they still have a hold on it. I think yesterday's result shows that Democrats still do have um, inroads to make in the Midwest. And I'll just throw in very quickly, the Chicago mayor's race kind of underlines that Mm. point, too where you have someone in Brandon Johnson, who was a little bit running more of as more of a progressive than Paul Vallis. And as race where crime, which is front of mind for so many voters all over the country, um, was kind of front of mind in Chicago and Brandon still prevailed despite being labeled sort of a soft on crime, defund the police candidate. So I think there's some there's some Easter eggs, perhaps for us in the Midwest. Um, And you can kind of see, you know, we'll see what happens in the next year and a half. But, um, you know, there's important messages there for Democrats and Republicans on what you run on and what issues voters really care about at this stage.
4: Yeah. And I want to make two points that I think could also. um, Well, we also have seen in Georgia, number one candidates matter, particularly in that Wisconsin race, you know, the Republican aligned candidate had said some controversial things and was just seen as there were other Republicans who might have been a little bit more competitive. And so, for example, we saw that in Georgia's U.S. Senate race and the runoff, as well as we saw that abortion did matter in Georgia's U.S. Senate runoff. So, in a swing state like Georgia, like Wisconsin, in an open seat that is considered a true toss-up, abortion can um, can be one of those uh, deciding factors.
1: All right, um, I I'm, thank you for that discussion because there are many observers who said that this Wisconsin Supreme Court race was the single most important election in an off year, 2023. Um, Audrey, very quickly, um, I want to address something that impacts you at the University of Georgia. Um, Governor Kemp issued his first veto of the session uh, yesterday. He vetoed a bill passed by the legislature which would have empowered the legislature to have to approve a raise in tuition for the university system of 3% or more? And the governor said, we're not doing it. Uh, the university system is under the control of the executive branch, the chancellor, and and it also may be unconstitutional. But this is part of this ongoing fight, particularly between the state senate and the university system, Sonny Purdue, that started when uh, the certificate of need issue came up with Burt Jones.
0: Yes. And, you know, I would say, having um, having met the chancellor not too long ago when he came to the University of Georgia, um, you know, Purdue has a very strong uh, political uh, network, and he is very dedicated to the university. And I believe that Governor Kemp, and I should say the university system, they recognize that so much of our state's um, economic powerhouse, um, the talent that is here, um, and how we differ from the other states in uh, our region is because we invest so much in education at all levels, technical K through 12, and our university system. And they are protecting that. And they are actually, I think, very angry that uh, there are members and leadership in the in the state senate who are willing to use it as a political tool or a piece of leverage. And I think that that is going to have a backlash on those individuals who are doing it because it is something that generally. Both in the House and the Senate, I would argue that most people deep down recognize its value, and and um, I think it is a mistake. And we mentioned that earlier before that I think this is a strategic mistake that uh, perhaps Senator, I mean, uh, uh, our our Lieutenant Governor is making.
1: Um, Rick, very quickly because we are close out of time. We shouldn't forget that is part of this battle the senate insisted on a cut to the university system's budget that ended up being 66 million they wanted a lot more than that
3: uh, yeah yeah they did you know it's fascinating this whole move really is it's a uh, the wrong reason for maybe something that's right look tuition has accelerated over the last few decades fueled really by the hope scholarship which was just free money for that system so i get where it's good politics but the reason they were doing it was not good politics let me just put it like that
1: all right rick Dent gets the last word on today's political rewind because we're completely out of time so thank you Uh, Rick, we loved having you. Audrey Haynes, you're always welcome, as are you, Maya King of the New York Times. And Tia Mitchell, thank you after a very long day yesterday in New York for being with us as well. Terrific conversation. I hope we'll have just as good a conversation tomorrow, and I'll see you all uh, then. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye-bye.